0: This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome to Talking TV. I'm Jake Cantor. Coming up this week, we discuss why telly's gone mad for mergers and acquisitions. Plus, we'll hear from Morgan Freeman and Matthew Perry in a special dispatch from the LA screenings. Also on the show, find out how Lion Television secured unprecedented access to British Airways for a new BBC Two series. And we've got an iPlayer comedy preview special as we sample some new mini sitcoms and pirate radio mockumentary People Just Do Nothing. So strap yourself in and prepare for takeoff. At the risk of overdoing the plane puns, joining us on board uh, Talking TV's flight deck this week is Stephen D. Wright. Happy passenger. <laughs> Uh, just about to vomit, actually. <laughs> you don't like the puns. But it's the turbulence. <laughs> yeah, it's the turbulent, turbulence. Turbulence of my words. Mm. Uh, also with me is broadcast editor Chris Curtis.
1: You were suited and booted for the BAFTAs this week. Was I, it good bash? Yeah, it was fantastic. It was good fun. It was. A, it was. A, it was one of those BAFTAs where it's quite hot. Sun was out, so everyone was a bit. All the. That's a good thing, no? though. And all the nominees were a bit sweaty in uh, in more than one sense. And what did you make of the winners? Yeah, it was good. It was good winners. I thought it was nice. They some nice mainstream winners. It was nice to see things like Long Lost Family pick up awards and, you know, sort of big popular mainstream shows. And then there were a couple of more left field choices as well. It was good. What did you make of it? Well, the thing, I was slightly disappointed. I watched as a viewer and I was a bit disappointed that the BBC
2: seemed to be left looking a bit stupid, you know, Strictly didn't Only get won anything. four awards, and the, well, and the Radio Times audience award doesn't count, apparently. <laughs> who cares about those people? Um, <laughs> the, the fact that Strictly lost to Ant and Dec mm-hmm. was a real surprise, because Ant and Dec, yeah, it's a good show, but it's the same show we've seen for years, nothing new, whereas Strictly last year was amazing. And also thought Graham Norton, who is telegold virtually every week, was better than, 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 than Ant and Dec. Was Brucey
0: there? Bruce, he was there. I'm Bruce, sure he yeah. would have been expecting an award, wouldn't he, given that it's his last his last series?
1: Well, he was disappointed if he was. <laughs> okay, on that note, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, up first,
0: just when you thought Channel 5 selling to Viacom and Discovery buying all three media was about as big as it gets, it is announced that Endemol, Shine and Core Media are clubbing together to form a mega indie. The rate of top-end market consolidation has been breathless in recent weeks and will surely result in a radical change to the UK television landscape. It's not over yet either, with experts predicting that more M&A activity is on the cards as companies like Fremantle strain to keep up with the competition. Chris, it's been pretty staggering, hasn't it?
1: A crazy few weeks is what one uh, uh, exec said to me at the the BAFTAs. Just the the number of deals and the scale of those deals has been remarkable. Is this going to change TV for a long time to come? No one knows yet. I mean, there's all sorts of sort of trickle-down effects that we need to try and gauge the impact of. So a thing that's happening in the background that no one's, talked a huge amount about is qualifying indie status and or for all of a sudden all those all three media indies that make a lot of hours for say the BBC or Channel 4 are going to become non-qualifying indies and that's going to play havoc with the with the quotas it's that kind of granular detail that we haven't really got our heads around yet but um, it's it's really uh, needs to be examined in quite a lot of detail.
0: Stephen, does this kind of thing concern you when you see these massive players coming together? It's, what about the little guys?
2: That's Well, exactly, that's the <laughs> thought. I mean, the TV is all about the little guys. It's always a, an individual producer that makes a show. It's always a, a very personified by the person behind the camera, etc. And no one really cares about the brand names of these mega indies or whatever. It's a bit kind of, ooh, scary on one. It sounds scary. If it actually offers producers the chance to keep in employment, then I'm for it. But uh, commissioners don't like commissioning uh, big mega indies. They always see that as a bit kind of traitorous, whereas they'd much rather support the little bespoke one-man is that band. So, do, you, do you really think so? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I you mean, don't think
0: they, they commissioners you know, see safety when they see big indies?
2: No, it, it's about the producer. It's always the producer. It's always the individual name. They don't go, oh, great, the Ender mole, whatever. That's fantastic, unless it's a reality show or something. But, you know, they will think who's the producer making it. But if it's... There is definitely a sort of reverse snobbery thing about you know you don't want to commission a hundred million pound a year indie when you could give it to uh, somebody who's going to survive on one and a half million for the next two years say you know artistically it probably makes no difference but you know it's got a weird sort of connotation of money versus credibility versus artistic credibility blah 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 and Chris
0: uh, you write this week in your leader about potential for a group of small indies to come together to, to combat some of this behavior in the market
1: yeah there's a few conversations taking place at that sort of media small medium size uh and we're of not the entirely market. sure who yet well we don't so we... you are out there come come forward and tell <laughs> us <yeah. laughs> i think it's people sort of trying to react to all this and thinking wow where does this where does this leave us and and seeking a bit of safety in numbers it seems like really, you know smart thinking what Stephen said is true. No one really knows how this is going to all play out. Um, It's a lot of it is to do with economic conditions. You know, the fact that the market is buoyant and a lot of it's to do with finances for discovery. You know, um, there were some financial imperatives uh, to do a deal. It made, it made good financial sense. So I think in some cases it's a, you know, that's kind of driving things. But yeah, when you look at the, The percentage of the UK production community that's looking like it's going to have a new home in the next three or four months, then it's uh, startling.
0: Well, as the situation develops, uh, you can read all about it in the pages of broadcast. Uh, Moving on, we'll be talking about BBC Two's access piece on British Airways later, but the channel has just ordered a similar series lifting the lid on Westminster. Atlantic Productions' four-part documentary, Inside the Commons, promises an unprecedented glimpse into the corridors of power. Uh, Stephen, these access
2: pieces are all very in vogue at the moment, aren't they? Why
0: do you think that is?
2: Well, when they're done right, they're superb, basically. They, you know... Following on from Inside Clarities, which which blew everyone away, a really old-fashioned documentary that had this amazing kind of characters drama. It's that thing of it feels like quality. You sit there, you let it, you soak in. To me, it's it's, a, it's slightly a retro thing to do, you know, an old in-depth documentary. But it's just when they're good, they're superb. They can't be bettered. However, whether or not the participants. Uh, are getting wise to what's going on and all the rest of it, you know. Because the more there are of these, the less likelihood uh, there is that you're going to get these great moments of, you know, unconscious behaviour, etc. You know, people so, play up to the cameras. Bit, well, right? play up or, or disguise their behaviour. I mean, it's it's so so for so for with with this one with Parliament. I mean, you know, this is the the biggest group of chances there's ever been. <laughs> You know what I mean? With the power and... and it's They're like, experts in fakery. Is that what you're well, saying? Well, you know, you know there, are, there are the odd liar and criminal and, and <laughs> sex addict in House of Parliament, but will we get them on camera, you know? So, it's you know, but it's good. It sounds good. Let's put it that way. It sounds interesting. Chris, will you be
1: watching? Probably, yeah, I reckon so. I think it's kind of what, St- what Stephen says about character is really interesting. So in the States, you've got this kind of very factual, that's incredibly character-led, that's much more produced and formatted and, and sort of constructed, you know, the kind of Duck Dynasty sort of things. And I kind of wonder whether these obdocs that are fashionable at the moment, are like a sort of slightly toned-down, British version of that it's funny we've had Iceland and Greggs and we've had Harrow and Claridge's and so it kind of you know you could the full social spectrum and now uh, and now Parliament which probably sits somewhere in between
0: somewhere in between yeah uh, also this week we learned that Kim Shillinglaw is uh, sort of her first few days in the hot seat what do we think in her in in train in the first uh, couple of weeks at BBC two
2: well, I've sent her several constructive documentary <laughs> formats about the Kardashians, said, but I haven't had a response yet.
0: Champagne and, and chocolates as well. No, no.
2: I'm not that naked in my obsequiousness.
1: It always used to be the case, didn't it, that you'd have to the BBC execs would um, have to declare what they'd received, and um, I think so, it still is. I mean, so Danny f-
0: Cohen had to declare whiskey, didn't he? Yeah, not an entirely
1: appropriate gift given, for Danny. Given, I wouldn't have given these I wouldn't have thought no, but. Um, What's Kim up to? I should imagine she's doing a bit of a get-to-know-you period, getting out and meeting some some indies, some of those uh, key suppliers, because we know that she's very well thought of, but the genres that she's worked in has meant that previously the, her exposure to indie community has been um, somewhat limited. I should think she's sitting down with... Ben Stevenson and making sure they keep that fantastic run of drama going on BBC2 and probably having a fit in trying to grab uh, Shane Allen as well because comedy is certainly an area they could um, try and make a bit of progress on for BBC2.
0: Fantastic. Uh, Last up in the news section, a small treat from the States. Uh, Broadcast's very own Peter White has selflessly ventured to California for the LA screenings where UK broadcasters have been in town eyeing up the latest uh, US television treats. Uh, Here's Peter's special dispatch from the screening room. And uh, being the multimedia journalist that he is, uh, he recorded it all on his iPhone.
3: I've been at the LA screenings this week trying to figure out which of the latest US network shows have a chance of making it big in the UK and which broadcasters might buy them. It's a very glamorous event and the Hollywood studios certainly don't spare any expense to impress the likes of Sky, Channel 4, Channel 5 and UK TV, uh, helped by the sunshine and the 40 degree weather. There's always a few shows that get the Brits talking, uh, some for good reasons and others less so. Gotham, the Batman prequel from Warner Brothers, has got a lot of attention, as have a couple of the other superhero shows like The Flash. American Crime, a dark, broad church-style crime drama, and uh, Madam Secretary, which is a sort of West Wing meets Good Wife political drama, were both well-received and and talked about. I talked to Morgan Freeman, one of the executive producers of Madam Secretary, about the competitive process of getting a show on air in the States.
2: We came up with the idea, it kept going, and it it took no time at all. Sometimes you'll have a a great idea, and it takes years, (laughs) years to get it going. And we've had at least two projects that go quickly, and many other projects that we just have to shepherd along over years. So there's no, there's no saying.
3: The studios certainly ensure that the on-screen talent and the exec producers of the shows talk to the buyers and pitch them themselves. Matthew Perry, who stars and exec produces a remake of The Odd Couple for CBS, was part of this international dog and pony show. Here's the Friends star talking about the odd couple and its chances of succeeding internationally.
4: It's such a popular name that I think it'll sell and Friends does very well overseas and hopefully that will, my name will help it. I was really intrigued by playing the part of Oscar Madison. Mm-hmm. I was a big fan of the play and the movie and the TV show and thought I'm very similar to this guy. I can shake hands with him, I <laughs> understand him. Yeah. And I thought it was time for me to be in front of a studio audience again. I've been battled against that for about 10 years and <laughs> finally decided that's what I really like doing and it's really fun and it's what I'm best at.
3: Many of them are hugely aware of the importance of the international market. Gary Glasberg, who executive produces NCIS and its latest spin off, NCIS New Orleans, says that the global market is vital for, for the success of his show. You
1: know, I made a point uh, a couple of years ago of going to MIPCOM and the whole uh, reason that I wanted to go was really to gain an understanding of just how far reaching the show was. Mm -hmm. When you do that and you meet the broadcasters in other countries, you you really gain an understanding of just just, uh, who you're connecting with. Mm -hmm. And one of the perks of doing a show that's military related, as we are, is that NCIS has real offices uh, in countries all over the world. So they're constantly reaching out to us. And telling us, you know, could you do a, a, an episode that, that portrays the office in Italy? Yeah. You know, can you do an episode about uh, Marseille, France? Yeah. Um, and we do.
0: Gary Glasberg there speaking to Peter White. That's your news for this episode. Thanks to Chris Curtis and Stephen D. Wright. Uh, Now then, over the past couple of years, BBC Two has taken viewers inside organisations including Claridge's, Iceland and United Utilities. For the channel's next access documentary, it will open the doors to British Airways, marking a successful end to a long campaign to book front row seats at the airliner. All three medias, Lion Television, was the indie that eventually secured a British Airways boarding pass and it promises to provide a window on the working lives of cabin crew, engineers and board members. Before we find out more, here's a taste of the first episode.
5: This is a very grey subject, yeah. isn't it? Because it's on the day. Right the okay. main thing is you cannot block a door. No. You cannot put a dead passenger in a toilet. It's not respectful. And also, they are not strapped in for landing. If they slid off the toilet, which could easily happen when you land, they will end up on the floor and they have to take the aircraft apart to get that person out. And it's. Can you imagine putting somebody in an aircraft toilet? Yeah. It's not. No. Oh, yeah. So, in nice easy world, which somebody dying on an aircraft isn't, you put them back in their seat. I know crew that have had to sit next to somebody that's passed away. The rest of the flight. and It's ho- all of this is such a
0: horrible topic. Do to you make them maybe look like they're asleep? Put a blanket over them. We used them in. to do
5: many years ago. You know, give them a vodka and tonic, Daily Mail, and a you know eye shade, and they'd be like,
0: "Yeah, they're fine." Uh, that was some cabin crew training there. Uh, but joining me now is is James Rogan, the director of a very British airline, and Lion Managing Director Jeremy Mills. Uh, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so for coming in. Um, so, first of all, could you, could you talk us through the process of winning access to British Airways?
4: Yeah, I suppose at line we're always looking for what the next access um, story is going to be. Uh, and you know, over the years we've done lots of stuff with the MOD and companies and different sort of hotels and things like that. Um, and BA obviously is a really big brand in Britain. And it's the sort of thing you think, well, there are great stories there. And uh, Nick Catliff, one of my partners at Lyon, and I worked on Airport many years ago at the BBC and started that off. And so we've had over the years a number of dealings with BA and have always been interested in what really happens. They're very visible. You, you can't look up in the London skies at least without seeing a BA plane flying over you. And they're part of most people's life at some point in the year. So it seemed an obvious target to go after. But equally, there are huge challenges in getting access. Clearly, here is a big multinational company, uh, quoted company, which have a lot to lose by taking part in this. And who knows what they've got to gain? It's an unknown. So I think it was almost two years, probably, in the process of getting access. Talking to them about what they were interested in, what was important to them... Uh, marrying that up with what was interesting to us and the viewer uh, and the sort of journalistic stories alongside the good narratives and trying to come to an agreement about what they would let us film um, and what we found interesting. I think in the end, they gave us a pretty good range of options of what they were able to help us film and that we thought would tell the story of individual parts of the airline but also give a, a bigger picture of the overall Uh, running of the airline and the way the airline fits into Britain today.
0: What was the turning point then? When did they say, right, we're prepared to let you in now?
4: To be honest, part of it was that we made a one-off film with them in their engineering works down in Cardiff for BBC2 called Engineering Giants um, which was a technical um, film, an engineering film about how they strip down every plane every few years right back to its carcass and build it back up again and actually that, if you think about it it's got a lot of potential pitfalls because here you are saying we're exposing all the faults in our plane and showing how we put them right before we put it back up in the air and I think because we made that film with them and it was both engineering, if you like, correct but also addressed all the issues that the viewer's interested in in a way that didn't uh, gloss over anything. So I us. think it helped during the trust, exactly that. And you know, that, and the fact that I think at Lyon we can point to a number of people we've worked with over the years who've had similar experiences, who've exposed themselves or their company or their institution. And at the end, um, I'd like to think we can go back to them and say, look guys, was it a fair, was it a good experience working with us yep you didn't like some of those elements fair enough but were they fair yep what was the outcome in the end well it exposed some bits that we didn't necessarily like but on the whole it was a good and fair experience that was beneficial to us and and to the viewer bbc's
0: been looking for access to british airways quite a while hasn't it i think i remember charlotte moore talking about it at sheffield in 2010 i think so they they must have been very pleased when you came to them with this
4: yes i think we were still you know when we initially spoke to them there's still three or four companies who BA we're talking to. And that's a very difficult thing with access, because you go to the, the person you're trying to get access from and say, we want to make this serious with you. And we said we've got ten other people who've you know called us today about this. So there's a there's a really interesting dance that goes on between the person you're trying to get access with and also the commissioner and the channel, and there comes a point when hopefully all three come together and then it suddenly happens. And it's it's some of its luck because it requires any institution to to need to be at a, a turning point of some sort in their own ambitions where doing this sort of project can have slightly more upside than downside. It's a big risk, you know, you have to say it is a huge risk for them because we, we will show everything warts and all so, you know, they have a lot to lose. I'd like to come back
0: to that in a second. James, what's it, what's it been like spending time in the
4: company?
5: Well, it's fascinating. I mean, it's one of those institutions that you you feel like you know really well and so to go behind closed doors felt from the beginning like a privilege. It is one of those companies. When I mentioned that I was making a documentary series about BA, everyone would be like, "Oh right, that's a brilliant idea." You know, they, 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 was, they just get it quickly. They get it very quickly. And uh, when I started, what fascinated me was was the Britishness of it. What you know, if you put British before Airways, what what did the British part mean? And also the fact that they were coming out of this extremely difficult period where they had really skirted the edge of bankruptcy in real terms, although I'm not sure whether they'd put it like that. But they they had lost a lot of money. And, and there they, was staff
0: unrest as well, wasn't it? Which you touch on in the in the first episode a little bit.
5: Yeah, we we wanted to we wanted to acknowledge the past, but we were very clear about the fact that the the past was merely a springboard for the series, which was what are they doing now and how are they putting themselves back together? And for them, it was a huge leap of faith to let us in. And we felt that on a daily basis, that BA is a, is an organisation that specialises in risk management. So letting a documentary team run around inside your inner workings is, is quite um, anxious making. But on the whole, what we found was a community of workers that was fascinating, full of character, full of um, different takes on life um, and full of sort of insight into this weird world where you sort of send people up into the air in an aluminium tube. You mentioned warts and all.
0: Is that true in this case? Do you, think, do you feel you've shown uh, perhaps a, a a different side to British Airways, perhaps one that they might not have been so willing to reveal if, if, they'd, uh, if they'd made this documentary themselves, for example?
5: Well, we show in the first episode, I don't know whether I'm allowed to give spoilers here, but uh, we show the launch of the A380 and all the preparation that goes into pleasing a first-class customer. And obviously... There's a lot. Their first class customers pay uh, you know, a small fortune to get on their planes, and the people we when we film their final delivery, it's quite interesting to see how the first class customers respond to what they have. Equally, when we followed them doing their um, their cabin crew training, it was not a painless process for the people going through it, and it was um, it was extremely rigorous and at times quite emotional. Yeah. They're, they're they're tough. They have extremely strict standards, and they're not prepared to exercise. But that's they're, quite they're, they're a good thing.
0: thing for British Airways to be revealing that to some extent, isn't it? What about some? Were there any moments where you thought actually this is quite close to the wire, and and British Airways? Potentially, might not like this if it goes out on air. What can you tell us about any of those sorts of moments? Well,
5: we were filming an engineering overnight, and they were replacing a windscreen. And one of the engineers told us a story about how a windscreen had been sucked out of a BA plane about twenty years before. And we knew, of course, that that was pretty contentious for them. All airlines fly on their safety record, so it's important in these in these situations that. People tell the truth, and that's all. Or big organisations have to accept that as a sort of. You know, and have you got that answers. into the show then? Yeah, that's in the show. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So what what process did you go through with BA? Did you did you tell them we've we've captured this moment? We'd like to tell you about it, and we'd like to get it in the documentary.
4: What's, what what do you, what do you do in that situation? Obviously, it's an ongoing dialogue, and yes, they did know it was in, and you know they accept the fact that they're going. To, some things are going to be in the programme; they aren't going to be necessarily happy with, but if they're factually true. Then that's what goes in the program, you know. Um, and likewise, I think the cabin crew training is a really interesting one. The first two programs we have two different stabs at that one because it's a narrative, and it's always difficult in a narrative not to give away the the two sort of punchlines of the narrative. But they give us complete access to that, uh, including the thinking behind their decisions in the process, and so on and so forth. So I think equally in the there's a great. Um, One of the programmes where we talk about this thing that James is talking about, the old and the new, you know, New York is a big, big route for them. really important route has been almost all their existence, really, hasn't it? They're opening up in China alongside a brand new route and they allowed us access to both ends and that the the china route was a huge risk it literally there from the start of setting up the route to the first flight coming in and who knows what's going to happen on that and a few things do go wrong on that um as you'd expect or anything but we show you're there to capture it yeah and it's fun you know there are two things going on aren't there any of these sort of programs number one you want to make it interesting and engaging and entertaining as a watch but I think at the bigger picture, when you stand back from it, the aim is that James has done a brilliant job in actually trying to get this sort of macro-micro thing going on where the narrative is what draws you through as a viewer, but hopefully when you stand back and think about it as an overview, you get this picture of what this huge, huge operation is around the world. Equally, the thing that's never been filmed before, the operations room. They have a 24 hour 365-day... A year operations room at Heathrow, which has never been filmed, and this is where it is the nerve centre of their whole operation. And we were in there, and things go wrong, and we show things going wrong, not necessarily because of BA's fault, but because of passengers, you know, having panic attacks or um, a certain item found in luggage, which is one of the stories that goes on. It's in how they deal with it. Now, it was a huge risk for them because they didn't know what the hell was going to happen when when we were filming in there. Whatever happened would have been there. So that's that's part of these access and ongoing access. You know, every day you work. With people like this, the access is continually being questioned and challenged yeah. from both sides. And James, just finally, uh, you you produced the, uh, well,
0: produced and directed the the Iceland documentary for BBC Two as well last year. Yeah. What has what's been the differences between the two companies?
5: The difference is is the BA is a publicly listed company it's a huge machine iceland is is run by malcolm and his board members so it's much more familial so if uh, iceland is is a village uh, ba is a city in that sense although they've, they've got similar size and workforce but the complexity of ba's operation is extraordinary so the which did you prefer working on (laughs) <laughs> no comments. <laughs> They're just so totally different, aren't they? I, mean, I don't think you have... I mean, you look at different filmmaking challenges and, and the priority for you as a, as a director, or for me as a director, is that the filmmaking is high quality and that I'm telling stories and trying to reflect the world, and they had very different themes. Um, although the, I'd certainly say that the last episode of BA, that we, we, we settle on a theme that is consistent in most of my work, which is community and how an organisation pulls together to deliver something under pressure, basically. Thank you very much to you both for coming in. Uh, A Very British Airline begins on BBC Two
0: at 9pm on the 2nd of June. Last but not least, we're on the previews trail. Chris Curtis and Stephen D. Wright are back with me. It's a sitcom special this episode and we'll start with a clutch of six comedy shorts that will be released exclusively on iPlayer on the 1st of June. They're all produced by Pet Productions, the indie behind Shooting Stars, and star a sparkling array of comedy talent, including Frankie Boyle and Mira Sayal. Here's one episode featuring Reese Shearsmith interrogating his patient Sally Phillips, who complains that one of her feet is higher than the other in a 1930s style skit.
5: How long has it been so raised, Hilda? 31 years,
1: Doctor. You only just noticed? I have been complacent in monitoring my feet height. But in my defense, Doctor, the raising has been very fucking
4: gradual.
0: Uh, Stephen,
2: there's quite a lot to go out here. What what was your favourite? Do you think my favourite one was probably the uh, what do you call it Morgana, mm-hmm. yeah thing because that, that Channel M, Channel M. I loved that one. I liked the Mickey Flanagan one, and then the Frankie Boyle one. I didn't quite love it. Was, it was a very mixed bag, <laughs> mixed bag. You know what I mean? Yeah. and that was what's quite fun. I mean, some of them I loved, and some of them I hated. Um, it's a bit like Quality Street, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting. It was it felt really new, and some of them felt completely shambolic, but some of them felt really, really out there. That was what was quite uh, sort of entertaining, and there was you could not predict what you were going to see. Uh, you know, I mean, some of them you think, well, maybe that could have gone, you know, further or whatever. That little mixed bag thing was a really nice, like, kind of thing to do. Were they funny? Some <laughs> of them were brilliant. Some of them, and some of them. That's the thing about comedy, you know. Some sometimes you think this is really funny for thirty seconds. And then it's like, ooh, hang on. And then other ones you think that's gone on a, a you know so no, I mean they were all funny. They weren't rubbish or anything like that, or unfunny, which is the, the word in comedy. But you, you liked Channel M, the Morgana Channel Robinson. M, I thought, jumped out much quicker. I mean, the the, the Amy Child sketch, I thought, was just... They were inc- all rip-offs of Channel 4 shows,
0: though. I thought they'd do, at least do some BBC ones. Well, I mean,
2: <laughs> you know, but it's it, I mean, I, I wasn't really bothered about that. It, it was, you know, are, are the jokes working? Yes, they were. Are, are her impressions working? Yes, they... You know, she did a, a Gogglebox one, which, you know... A posh think, couple. I don't think they looked <laughs> anything like them, but the gag was there, that was the thing. But no, I mean, I mean the Mickey Flanagan one I thought was very good. The Frankie Boyle one, he couldn't really act his way out of a, a paper bag. That was what was annoying, because the sketch was quite funny, but he was rubbish. He personally, which I was really disappointed because I love his, his stand-up, but in a sort of sketch way, to me didn't that didn't quite work. work. You know? Chris, what did you make of the whole...
1: I thought it felt really sort of fresh and unusual and exciting. What I liked about it was they they weren't all five minutes. There was nothing cookie-cutter about them. Mm. They were all completely different. And I liked the fact that one of them was eight and one of them was three and a half, and it just felt like it had been done. And this is kind of this brave new world that, that, that BBC Three is going to be at the forefront of exploring. And there's something quite... Short form is really interesting, I think. And whether or not... I had a, 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 an argument with a, with, with a, someone in the industry the other day about whether short form is going to kind of cut through, and I think it will. Channel Four are doing something um, for shorts. And you can see that this, with iPlayer and with BBC Three, is going to be something else. the The quality was really up and down. I like I liked um, Matt Berry's voicing of the um, the Lone Wolf, the, the Lone Wolf, <laughs> with his very earnest and the, and actually I think that might have been written by Bob mortar There was a yeah, there was a, three of them are written by Bob Mortar. The that, Lone Wolf,
0: um, I think uh, the cookery show with Frankie Boyle and the Rhys
1: Shearsmith skit that we just heard. There was quite a lot of that slightly madcap um, Vic and Bob humour, where you know it wasn't. It's not obvious gags. It's just a kind of weird zaniness, and that's quite well suited to short. there was they were a bit hit and miss. I thought in, in in quality, but some I some I ruled with laughter, others I sat pretty stony faced. But really interesting experiment.
2: Just quickly, Stephen, can you see any of them developing into anything bigger? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, the Morgana one completely. The Mickey Flanagan felt like a sitcom. You know, him and his his wife living in that. I, I could watch that completely. You I know, mean, that felt like a a nascent sketch whereas um, some of the other ones were just, you know, literally little tiny
1: gags. I think it would be a shame if the whole point of doing these short-form things was to try and then find 30-minute comedies yeah. i think the whole point of it would be if you hit on something that works a short form you know what make a batch of them and then release them one a day stripped for 10 days or so i don't know i sort of i think the form in its own right short form should should be allowed to develop rather than just thinking oh this is a test bed for tv
0: mm, something for the bbc to chew on there uh, our final show of the fortnight is pirate radio mockumentary people just do nothing originally piloted as part of the comedy feed scheme in 2012 The BBC soon commissioned a full four part series and has dumped it all on iPlayer ahead of a BBC Three TX in September. Among the characters that helped get the pirate radio station corrupt on air is local internet cafe owner, Chabuddy. This is my internet cafe. Come through, come through. And here she is in all her wonder. Chabuddy's worldwide internet cabin cafe. So come through here, come through here. I'll show you everything. So this is also my home, which I share with my lovely wife, Aldona. Aldona, say hello, darling. We've got camera crew here. Look.
4: This is the bed where we do our sleeping, if you can call it that.
1: <laughs> actually, Aldona, can you give us
0: a minute? See that? She walked out instantly. Obedience. Very sexy in a woman. <laughs> I, think, I think he's my
2: favourite character, actually. So I loved it. it. Yeah, it's brilliant. I, but the thing is, I'd never heard of this show, so I started watching it. And thought it was a real documentary, <laughs> because I, and then I had to and I was like, hang on. For the first couple of minutes, I'm like, oh no, it's one of these awful earnest youth documentaries. And then I started to snigger, and I was like, no, come on, wait. And then I went back to the notes and went, oh, hang on, it's a comedy. And but no, I just sort of was absolutely brilliant. I was really blown away by how clever it was. The characters were were amazing, and and also they had some very very subtle gags, you know, not just the big kind of crass kind of moments. But the 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 mixed race child thing was just that was comedy genius. That little look, I mean, oh, it was brilliant. And and I'm desperate to watch the next one. Well, you can you can watch it on demand. Well, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. But it was it was no like, waiting I was, around. I was the thing was I'd shocked at how come I've not heard about this. Why are they not t- saying how good it is? I mean, if this is how good the iPlayer... Player. Uh, BBC Three kind of thing is going to be, then yeah, you know, great. And when it was uh, when it was originally launched in 2012 under the Comedy Feed scheme,
0: it was the most shared uh, content on iPlayer for the whole of the year, which I think makes sense Mm. when you watch it. The young people, they see, they know what they're doing. (laughs) (laughs) They
1: they can spot old folk
2: think we're watching proper documentaries. Chris, what what was your thoughts?
1: I really like. I didn't quite love it as much as Stephen. I funnily enough, I felt that it could have worked better as a sketch. One of the five-minute sketches. I'm being booed by Mister D Wright, but I I, I, I don't know. I just sort of felt like I I worried a bit that whether the joke—it's four parts, isn't it? That's right. I, I worried a bit whether the joke might wear a bit thin over the over the four episodes. But it's you know it's really nicely made. It's kind of really believable. The the acting is really really good in it because it's so convincing and they've got the tone of it really really nice there, there were moments that i really enjoyed moments where i thought it was a bit signposted but again it's really nice to be talking about something that's a bit different if you it's know because you don't like grime and uh and uk garage well as a resident of the elephant and castle Stephen, <laughs> um it actually i felt very at home watching uh, corrupt fm um but these, these th- are your neighbors
2: right
0: <laughs> these
1: are kind of my neighbors it was uh, listen i enjoyed it but i i wasn't it didn't feel...
0: I'm surprised because you're a massive fan of Phone Shop and it, it's totally there are similarities, I think.
1: Yeah, I don't... I mean, I, by the end of the first episode, I kind of thought, I've got this joke now. And I wasn't totally convinced that I wanted to go and watch another two, three, uh, three episodes. But look, I'm being pretty harsh on it. It was funny. It was different. I chuckled away during the half an hour.
0: Stephen, you, you clearly want to watch the rest of the series. I'd,
1: I'd, I went on to On Demand and
2: saw there was episode two and episode three and downloaded them started watching episode two last night, which is the, uh, the daughter's birthday party. And I just love it. I absolutely love it. I mean, I can understand what Chris means about, oh, will the characterization and the story develop? But, hey, it was so good... I don't care. I'm prepared to give it a chance. I Do you mean, think
0: anyone's going to watch it on BBC Three, given that it's been on iPlayer for so long? By the time, uh, yeah, there.
2: because nobody, the rest of the world, let's put it that way, is still watching telly. So it's it's just that thing of with the problem with all digital TV is is shouting about it, hearing about it. You know, I watch hundreds of shows and I'd not heard of this before, so I felt a bit embarrassed. And then watched the credits. as very you know high powered uh, people behind this. And it's Ashton rough cut TV, yeah. And, uh, you know, and you think, oh, okay, maybe this is, you know, it's, it's a great, great little thing. And it, and it feels completely, you know, what's the word, uh, fully made. It doesn't feel like yeah. a, a triact. You know, it feels like the script and the acting. I mean, Chris said the acting is superb. Uh, the props, the, the scenery, it just looks
1: great. Really, really believable, you know. I think more people will watch it probably because it has been on iPlayer, first of all. I think the whole, th- particularly for comedy, it's like you want to watch things again. So I can tell again now I know that it's a comedy.
0: (laughs) 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 All right, guys, uh, thanks very much for that. The full series is available on a smartphone, tablet, or computer near you. And that, I'm afraid, is that. We'll be back in a fortnight with a special episode featuring highlights from the Broadcast Media Summit, which is hosting speakers including ITV Chief Executive Adam Crozier. For more details and tickets, visit creativeweek.co.uk Until then, thanks to all our guests this week, Chris Curtis, Stephen D. Wright, Peter White, James Rogan and Jeremy Mills. I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was Matt Hill. See you in two weeks' time.
4: You've been listening to Broadcast, Talking TV. Recorded at Maple Street Studios.